Hello everybody and welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast. This is episode 11 where we're going to be discussing the science behind MMA with Dr. Lachlan James. Lachlan is a strength and conditioning researcher that has done a range of research and work in mixed martial arts and some of his work is fantastic and been really revolutionary in the sport of MMA. Now we're going to be talking to Lachlan about uh, strength qualities, assessments and programming strategies in MMA. But before we get into it, as always, I'd like to kindly ask you to subscribe to the channel. And if you like what we're doing so far, please take around about 30 to 60 seconds of your day to leave us a five-star review at the bottom of the podcast. Uh, and if you could share some kind words, that'd be much appreciated. Now, before we get into the podcast, I'd like to make a a quick apology for the first part of the podcast because the connection wasn't great for some reason. Uh, I think it was absolutely bombing it down uh, when we started the podcast in Wakefield. And my connection is pretty bad when I'm first speaking, but Lachlan and Alan seems to be pretty fine. Uh, but I just want you to know that we stopped the interview around about 10 minutes in, redid the Zoom link, and then we cracked on with the podcast with no interruption. Last thing that I want you to do is to listen to me being broken up uh, at the start and thinking, oh, this is what it's going to sound like all the way through. Switch off and miss some absolute golden content from Dr. Lachlan James. So, apologies for the first 10 minutes. Please get through it and get through this uh, full 50 minutes worth of golden information about strength and conditioning in MMA with Dr. Lachlan James. Welcome everybody to the Boxing Science Podcast, episode 11. Uh, today I've got to excuse uh, myself and Alan if we sound a little bit tired, slurping a, a bit of coffee whilst we're doing this podcast because we're doing it early because uh, our guest today comes from the other side of the world. He's based in Melbourne, Australia is strength and conditioning researcher, Dr. Lachlan James. Lachlan, how are you doing? Danny, Alan, I'm well, thanks, lads. Thank you very much for having me on. Good. How's uh, lockdown over there? Is it easy enough now? Are you getting back to some sort of normality? Well, as you can imagine, it's all over the place. Fortunately, Australia as a whole hasn't been hit too hard, and things were locked down, and now they're starting to open back up. Got a little bit of a, a bump in the road here in Melbourne at the moment, but hopefully it's just that. And like everybody else around the world, we're looking forward to getting back to normal as soon as possible. And and judging by your background, you're, uh, you're from the urban area of Melbourne. <laughs> so if anybody knows Melbourne, they'll know that in addition to coffee and AFL football, yeah. uh, street art is a really cool thing. So there's plenty of street oh, art right. around where... I live so that my background is just a photo of something up the road so it's, it's kind of cool hopefully you guys can get out here one day it looks a bit like Sheffield that it's yeah down uh, down in the city center where I walk to work there's there's a few buildings that look a little bit like that it's cool yeah yeah Melbourne's a cool place to live for sure and a great place to be uh, an applied sports scientist and strength conditioning scientist for sure Fantastic. So, Lachlan, can we kick things off by just giving yourself a bit of introduction to uh, what your role is, what your day-to-day -day tasks are, and what uh, kind of background, what's got you into uh, strength and conditioning? Yeah, for sure. So, currently my role is uh, a lecturer and researcher in strength and conditioning and applied sports science at Latrobe University in Melbourne. So, half of my job is lecturing and teaching the, the strength conditioning coaches and applied strength scientists of tomorrow, which I love. And the other half of it is, is research into the areas that, that I enjoy as well. So a lot of that research involves working with the, the teams that we have around here in Victoria, a lot of professional teams in here to helping them answer whatever sort of strength science or research questions they have. Um, and the other part of it for me is take some stuff to the lab as well. So I've got this balance between the the applied stuff and the, the lab-based stuff. So that's what I, I do at the moment. But my background is a bit different from other academics as I've only really been 
in academia, if you could call it that, since I started my PhD. And I started that in 2014, and then I finished that in 2017. So before that, though, I was in industry and practice, strength and conditioning. So that's what I did for, for 10 years or so. I finished my undergrad at the Queensland University of Technology in, in 2005. So I'm born and raised in Brisbane, Australia. And then as soon as I finished my undergrad, I couldn't wait to, to get out of there and, and travel the world and not do any more study at all and really get yeah. my hands dirty with the applied stuff. So while I was at uni uh, in Brisbane, I did some personal training like, like we all did. And that sort of gave me a taste of it. I knew I really wanted to get out there and make the most of it. So moved overseas, actually spent a year in the Cayman Islands. So I was there for 12 months and I worked at World Gym there. And I, at, in that time, I started to move a bit towards the more strength conditioning side of things rather than general population. So after a year there, um, I then packed up and relocated to Vancouver, Canada, where I was for, for nine years. And in that time there, I worked for a, a multidiscipline exercise science company. And I worked there in the strength conditioning side of things for about five years. And in that time, I built up some networks. And then I went out and I launched my own business, which was Applied Sports Science Strength and Conditioning. And so I did that for several years as well. During that time, I felt ready to upskill. So I did a master's degree through the University of Queensland externally while I was in Vancouver. And I really liked that. And I did that to further my practice. And I liked it so much. I did a second master's um, externally through Edith Cullen University in Perth uh, with the original intention just to sort of upskill and further my practice. But I really liked it. And I thought, okay, this is pretty good. You know, getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning and scraping the ice off your car in Canada to go to go and train people starts to get a bit taxing over the years. So I'm like, okay, maybe maybe a PhD is a good way to go. And so I made that decision, relocated back home to Brisbane and the University of Queensland, and I did my PhD there under Emma Beckman and Vince Kelly with. Greg Haff um, as an external supervisor. During that time, this is about 2014, I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to go industry high performance with that or towards academia. And so I got to dabble in a little bit of, of both during that time. It was pretty clear to me that I was ready as somebody that was in their 30s to make that exit strategy and that transition away from the heavily applied day-to-day -day stuff to more academic and research. And, um, I moved down to Ballarat. I got a job there just as I was finishing up my PhD uh, with Warren Young and Scott Talpy. And then I relocated again to Melbourne uh, to La Trobe University. And I've been there ever since. Fantastic. So it's, it's great to see that you've actually got that practical application and, and that experience and then made the transition to research. A lot of people just kind of go research based straight away and don't really grasp the, the understanding of what it is like in, in the real world. Um, so the reason why we're talking to you today is because uh, a lot of your work is in mixed martial arts. How do you kind of to that? And what is, you know, what is it like in Australia, uh, mixed martial arts? Is it a, a big culture over there? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you my story on, on that. So obviously I was in Canada at the time. So I was in Canada, this is probably maybe around 2010 or so, and I had my small business and, you know, I was doing the master's degrees. And so you start thinking about things differently. So you start seeing applied sports science and performance analysis and everything that you're involved with or that you see. So you start analyzing everything. So around the corner from me in Vancouver was one of the few Hicks and Gracie BJJ schools around. I knew that that was kind of a cool thing. So I got involved in that. And then through that, you start to, to meet other, obviously, BJJ players and, of course, MMA guys as well. And so doing that and I'm doing my studies and I've got my, got my business. And so you start to, to work with some of the guys there, of course, and they're, they're all interested as well. So during that time, I'm like, okay, this, this is a really interesting sport. It has such a broad scope of physiological and biomechanical qualities that you need, strength, power, through to endurance, but also technically as well. And in addition to that, there's so many ways you can win or lose. So 
it was really ripe for a good performance analysis. And then so I thought, okay, this could be something that I'd like to explore uh, for a PhD. So at the time in Canada, GSP, so Jean Saint Pierre, was was huge, and so MMA was next to ice hockey, one of the, the biggest sports there was there. So everyone was heavily immersed in it, and that's that was the the environment that I was in. So it was really sort of a logical thing, and then you build up relationships with the fighters too because you're training with them or you're rolling with them. And I thought, okay, so the hardest part of this job, if I want to do a PhD in this, is, is testing competitive fighters. So I feel like I'm building up a good network. So proposed that to um, Emma and Vince and Greg Hafts, my advisors, and they thought it was a great idea. So came back to Queensland, got warmed up there, got things lined up, and then flew back to North America and collected a lot of my data there before then coming back again to Australia and, and acquiring more data here in Australia. And that's sort of how I got into it. Really cool. <clears throat> really, really interesting journey that you've had to, to get to the, the point where you are now. Lots of rich experiences as well that have not only in, informed your work as a, as a coach and then as a researcher and as a combining research and, and academia now and passing those experiences on. But I just want to try and transport you back to your time as a SNC coach working with MMA athletes. What are some of the challenges that you found from a coaching perspective? Maybe that's challenges around relationships between you and athletes or challenges between the relationships between you and coaches and how you began to maybe implement some S&C strategies into their training. Yeah, great question. So keep in mind, this was probably around eight years ago or so. So it was eight years ago and we're talking about competitive amateur or semi-pro fighters. So that's the, the population you're dealing with. The, and none of this will come as a surprise to you guys or anybody who's dealt with, let's say, the combat sports. Probably the hardest thing to communicate to them was that a workout didn't have to involve blood, sweat and tears. And it helps to get stronger. And sometimes you have to lift heavy things and then have a rest and then lift them again. Not every session is going to be like your, your typical um, applied session on the mats. And not every session, none of them, in fact, will look like a CrossFit session. So that was probably one of the bigger ones, uh, particularly when you're talking about resistance training and strength training. Um, you, you're really trying to deal with whatever state the athlete presents themselves in to you because the, the sports-specific training was, was somewhat erratic as well. So they might be more beaten up or less beaten up one day. And you couldn't, you couldn't always be be certain of the progression that they're going through with their sports specific stuff on the way towards uh, an amateur bout. So that was always hard as well. And really, you're really there to manage the fatigue. Because how do you get them, them stronger and manage the fatigue? They're getting, they're getting enough strength endurance, at least these guys were, and they're getting enough anaerobic, aerobic type training from their sports specific training. So your job there was to, to manage that and to find ways to get them a, a bit stronger and to maybe prevent, prevent some injuries and to improve their, their movement quality a little bit along the way. So it was really just the fundamental stuff in my case back then. And I'd like to think that, and I'm pretty confident of this, that these days it's, it's come a little bit further, particularly with the advent of the UFC Performance Institute over there and all the great work that's mm. happened and the awareness that's being developed. So I'd like to say it's progressed a fair bit uh, since those times. What do you what, what do you think? What do you think some of the main progressions have been? I mean, we we spoke to Duncan French um, at the UFC Performance Institute, who I, I know you know, a few weeks back, and it seems to me that the UFC, uh, in terms of their athlete preparation, in a few years' time, they will be leading the way in not not just combat sports but the whole of sports with with the 
the the plans that they have um, and and some of the projects that they've going on now is absolutely in, incredible. Um, where do you where do you see those developments coming from since since your time? They they'll have to be leading the way because MMA is such a complex sport. So if you're going to be organising the training and developing good habits and appreciation of, of training science, then it's going to have to be world-class because it's such a complex sport. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think where you'll start to see the improvements is, is probably simply in the organisation of training, particularly maybe in the, the off-season and having some sort of a, a structure there. We can't even call it an off-season because fights come up on a, on a moment's notice, but having some sort of a plan and structure in there and then the, the integration of the training tasks and possibly open lines of communication as well. So I'd say that's probably the biggest thing is, is just the organisation of training and putting a bit more thought into it rather than it being ad hoc, I guess, which is what it often felt like historically. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And one of the things um, that, that we've done before is we've had round table discussions with with various different experts and uh, one of the the guys that we work fairly closely with is rob madden who's anthony joshua's physio and when asked we asked him what what do you think are they going to be the, the new developments in physio and injury prevention in combat sports over the next few years and he said training structure planning an organization and integrating between disciplines, and it really, really oh, that, that's great. It really, it really is that simple, isn't it? And, and it's it's identifying training load, managing training loads, and making sure they're progressed appropriately, in order to to enhance training consistency and manage injury risks, so we can keep athletes fresh and performing to the level that we need them to be performing at at any given time, and and keeping them them free of injury um, so they can perform best in the areas where they they need to be performing at which is principally for us in in sparring yeah absolutely and i think it comes down to periodization theory as well which is you know it's a set of general principles that if you can understand those general principles then you, it's it's easy enough to start to organise your training and it can answer a lot of questions without being stuck in rigid models. So once you understand the, the basic principles of training organisation, then I think you're on the right track. Michael, could you explain to us what the kind of key strength conditioning methods that you'd employ with fighters based on your experiences and, and your research as well? I know it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, we know that with boxing science, we've got different types of athletes, but we have a very gen. We we do have a general philosophy of what we want to work towards. I just wondered whether you had a, a, a similar kind of philosophy. Sure. So it's been a, been a couple of years now since I was hands-on in the trenches. But as I said before, it was really about the fundamentals. That was. That was the focus. What, what became clear though throughout, throughout my PhD research is what, what distinguishes those higher from lower level fighters. So exploring that, if you're, if you're less trained and you're, uh, you have your lower level competitor, it's just the, the basic fundamentals and you're going to see general gains that will, that will translate through. And yeah, that's, that's the same for anybody with low training age. However, if you have somebody that's a bit more trained, you can start to really target areas that, that may have deficiencies as well. And that comes down to your, your testing as well. So what was interesting is, let's say you do a counter movement jump test on high level MMA guy and a low level MMA guy, you'll see that, okay, the high level guy will jump higher, you know, have a greater velocity takeoff and all the gross metrics will be, will be bigger, which, which kind of makes sense, right? Um, but the interesting thing is, if you look at the, the correlation or the relationship between all those metrics within a single jump for the high level MMA fighter, if you look at that, those correlations between the variables from a single jump, for example, 
aren't as tightly correlated as they are for those at a lower level. So you have a lower level guy do the counter movement jump, boom. If they have a high jump height, they'll probably have um, a high peak power, probably have a high average velocity. Everything will be positive. It's all kind of the same. It's, it's very, very homogenous. So what it means is you could probably do a, just a typical vertical jump test with an untrained or a, a lower level MMA fighter and it'll give you all the information you need. But as you get more trained, each of those, each of those variables tend to become a little bit more distinct. So what that means is your training therefore has to be more targeted towards those variables because they represent more distinct qualities. Whereas with somebody that's at a lower level, it's all kind of a homogenous type quality. So you can give general training for a general response for that person that's lower tier. As they become more trained, because each of those qualities become more and more distinct, you have to be more focused with your training to target each of them. You know, that's something that we've seen in the, the strength conditioning literature over time. You give um, lower trained individuals a, a training stimulus, they'll get kind of general adaptations. As you become more trained, you need more specific training interventions to target specific qualities. So that was that was sort of really the, the way I'd alter my training structure depending on the capabilities of the individual that I had. Um, regarding that's quite similar to, yeah. I'm gonna, I was just gonna say, Alan, uh, it's quite similar to our thought process in terms of one, analysis and assessment, and two, uh, the training program itself. For low trained or people that are just coming into the gym for the first time, to count movement jump and a squat jump test, and that tells us everything that we need to know for them going forward, and we give them a very generic strength conditioning program uh, with specific goal. And then when an athlete is like maybe have trained for a year or 18 months, we then do a load velocity profile. So then we know exactly where they should be targeting their, their weightlifting. So for example, if somebody is really, really fast, but not as strong on the load velocity profile, we go, right, we need to work on max strength or work on some partial lifts to, to push that level up so we know exactly where to put athletes so it's good that we've got the uh the same mindset when it comes to analysis and programming alan do you want to uh, ask your question mate I was, sorry I to was, put in <laughs> I, was li I was literally going to say that the same thing is that we would we would use a, a load velocity profile on uh, yeah. either landmine punch throw test and a and a um, trap bar deadlift jump as well which we've been been looking into haven't we so um similar similar types of uh, of thoughts there what we don't use however um at the moment is a force platform um so i, I wondered whether that's something that that you use like with your with your athletes is, is, is a force platform to try and pick out some of those uh, physiological and mechanical variables that might then point you into uh, a more focused direction for more targeted testing? That's a really good question. And that's, that's the important question that you have to ask, ask yourself is, okay, what's the, the population I'm dealing with the most? How important is it that I can get a multitude of variables from my counter moving jump or from a mid-thigh pull or something like that. Because if you can get those variables and they do mean something distinct, it can be really helpful to, to inform your training. However, probably for the vast majority of cases, a couple of variables that you could get from maybe a, a linear position transducer, provided that your, your variables are, are reliable, that's your most important thing. And sometimes you can get away. So I would say to answer that question is the more strength trained your population or the more potentially jump trained your population, the more important it is to have a really valid and reliable measure of the counter movement jump. And that would be using something like a force platform. But you know what the cool thing is, is these days is you can get them fairly inexpensively, as we all know. So it does make them a, an affordable option. And even, even some companies, you can rent them out as well. So you could have some sort of a, uh, a rental type 
um, situation over, over a couple of years, which can be a good option for a small business as well. So the options are there. And it's just a matter of what population you're dealing with the most. Mm. And um, could you tell us, tell us a little bit about how your work in the past has been integrated into the recent study that you've just published on and count movement jumping and some of the key findings and practical applications that you've found from that recent study? Sure. All, nearly all of my, my research questions, e even today, are born out of things that you're encountering, I guess, firstly, for me, as, as a practitioner, you're like, geez, I really like to find, find a way to solve that one and answer that question. And now it's a little bit more, you know, you encounter something as, as an applied sports scientist, like, oh, geez, wonder, wonder why that is. And then so that becomes your next question. Or you, you're working with your, your teams and your strategic partners here in, in Victoria or, or overseas, and they come to you with a question that they'd like answered. And that's a, an interesting yeah. challenge for you. So that's, that's sort of my process of, of coming across research questions. As far as the, the most recent paper on MMA athletes came about in, in my case, well, I did one earlier on that looked at strength and power qualities of higher and lower level MMA athletes to get an idea of whether strength and power, for lack of a better term, whatever we're calling it this week, maximal neuromuscular expressions, um, to see how much those qualities distinguished high from lower level MMA competitors. Okay, so looked at that, you're like, okay, it does, that's good, strength and power is important, and it does so throughout the loading spectrum. It does so in a one RM squat, does so in an unloaded counter movement jump and it does all in between. All right, so you need throughout the spectrum. So that, that was an interesting finding. So you've got that information. And what you can do with that is you start to build your model of performance. So we could say, okay, you need strength and power throughout the spectrum in MMA. So that's important. So you can start to consider that when you're looking at your training. Let's say if you've got a different outcome, if you looked at that and you said, okay, it looks like in unloaded conditions, the high level athletes performed much better. In the loaded conditions in a one RM squat, there wasn't too much difference at all. You might go, okay, that's sort of the characteristic of an MMA fighter. It's these high velocity unloaded conditions um, or expressions. And so that's what we need to consider with our training. Or it could be the other end. You know, let's say rugby league's a good example. Look at it throughout the spectrum and you go, okay, unloaded, maybe not so much. As soon as you get load on them, as soon as they're doing a, a, a squat, you can start to see a difference. So maybe that's where we have to direct our training more towards that side, um, considering training status and all that. But in MMA, it was pretty clear it was throughout the spectrum. So that in itself was an interesting finding that can start to direct training interventions. So then, then the next thing that came about, and this is, of course, inspired by um, John McMahon and Jason Lake's work, is, all right, these gross variables that we looked at in this first paper a couple of years ago. That's cool. It's really interesting. That was sort of the, the foundation. But it would be curious to find out how these gross or outcome match metrics from the counter movement jump were achieved. So what was the jump strategy? And that was sort of the, that was the, the motivation for looking at this latest paper is to see what was the, the change in jump strategy. So we know these gross metrics are better. That's cool. Good information. But is there anything more to this that might be interesting? And so that was the that was the background to to that paper, and we had some interesting findings. I think it's interesting that you can get so much from a simple jump. Yeah, yes, it is. Um, and you know, talk to to Jason Lake and uh, John McMahon about it, and, and it's fantastic. But they'll, they'll also be the first to tell you it can be overwhelming, and you've got to keep it simple too. Yeah. So that's, that's my philosophy. But um, what we did find from this most recent paper, though, was, was something that I thought was interesting. And if we look at a counter-movement jump, and we'll sort of keep it in fundamental terms here. All right, cool. So the high-level MMA fighters jump higher. That's fine. It makes sense. But it's the, the timing of that force application that's really interesting. So it seems like they do a really swift, quick counter-movement. Yeah. So quick and then they have a quite a, a forceful concentric phase. So they get this big output with really minimal input, yeah. which I think is interesting. So if you look at something like 
then flight time to contraction time or RSI mod, mm. you can see that that really distinguishes the two groups. Now that might be distinct from, and I'm using rugby league as an example because from Queensland and Australia, and that's what we do and did, did some stuff, did some work there with those athletes. Mm. So you might see, okay, maybe, maybe the, the professional guys might jump a bit higher. Um, but if you look at their, at least from my experience, their counter movement strategy, it's a longer, slower counter movement. Whereas with the, the MMA guys, it's a really quick one. So the MMA guys, they have this really short, quick counter movement, almost like, like a snake, yeah. but then results in this, this high concentric force output. Whereas if you're looking at say a rugby union or a rugby league player, they have this big wind up and then they can load up and then force through that. And that's characteristics of the sport, as yep. you can imagine. You know, if you're trying to, you know, evade an attack but stay in the pocket in MMA, you need to have swift, small movements that allow you to reposition yourself in a good position. Whereas looking at the rugby codes, you can see somebody coming up in a line, you can prepare for that and you can load up for that. So yeah. I thought that was that was particularly interesting. Very cool, very cool. Um, anyone who knows me and Danny knows that we uh, fairly regularly have a jump off. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> whenever the whenever the opto jumps out, we can't we can't resist to have a, a it's pretty even. We have swings. We have swings whenever he's doing a lot more strength training than me and I'm like in an endurance phase. He's normally only about half a centimeter higher than me. That's about right, isn't oh, it? Oh, whatever. But, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but we're jumping like, but we, but but um. So for example, we uh, we'll we'll pop out, any anywhere between like fifty five and and sixty centimeters. We'll we'll me and Danny. But the average for um boxers that are not on our program is around about thirty five centimeters for a, a counter movement jump. That's right. That's right, isn't it, Danny? Could be a little bit higher. Yeah, with with three arms as well. Yeah, with free arms, yeah, so it's around. All right, interesting. Um, what what kind of heights are we seeing, just so we can benchmark? What what kind of jump heights are you seeing across? Let, let's just take those two main sports that, that you've talked about in, in rugby league um, and in uh, MMA. It's a good question. I can't remember, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> like, I can tell you that, that neither were particularly mind-blowing. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting because, you know, we, we, we've, we have had some MMA guys come into the lab and, and we have tested them on their jump heights and they're, they're, they're popping out around over, over 50 centimetres at, at least. Um, I remember when I was um, working in rugby league, we were probably seeing on average across all the different positions, probably around about anywhere between 48 centimetres and, and low 50s for the for the better guys. And this was semi-pro. Um, but boxers are... Big mass though, right? For, big mass. for your rugby league, rugby union players. Yeah, big mass. But um, yeah, these are these are a lot higher. They're a lot lower in, in boxing in both counter-movement jump and squat jump as well. And the, the squat right. jump is very similar to counter-movement jumps height as well. So that that's interesting. So what you guys are seeing is the MMA guys getting far higher than than the boxing guys. Yeah. Yeah, and the it's not only how high, but it's also the difference between squat jump and counter-movement jump. Like we, It's not uncommon for boxers to have a squat jump higher than the counter movement jump because they're just not used to that eccentric utilization. Whereas like MMA fighters, no matter how kind of trained or untrained they are in conditioning, found that they're naturally better at counter movement jump than squat jump. And I'll put that down to the eccentric utilization of the, the hamstrings in, in a kick. Um, yeah. They're naturally very fast on, on, the, on the woodway curve as well. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's that. some interesting data. That's good. Yeah, um, yeah. So another study that I've um, seen you post on Twitter, a recent one, is the uh, one on power clean, and he's talking about how important technique is for that kind of that power expression. 
And you actually mentioned that in, in the book, obviously in a more of a, a technical side, it's in that they've got to have this new muscular expression to make it, and the technique has got to be quality, the accuracy has got to be quality to make sure that it is uh, applying to the sport because it's punching or kicking somebody in the head or going anywhere in MMA. Uh, but that leads me to the question because you've got this power clean where technique is really important. You're talking about how important technique is and all that at the moment, stuff like jumps, squats, loaded jumps. How specific do you think that MMA athletes should go in terms of their strength condition exercise selection, such as like we use at Boxing Science, we use medicine ball punch throw, landmine punch throw, stuff like that. Uh, based from a physiological side, not psychological side, what, what is your opinion on specific exercises? Yeah, so I, I think that's a good question. And when I'm talking about, about technique, I'm thinking about the, the timing of force application and being able to, to control that. So sometimes you need to be able to, to load up. Maybe there's a window of opportunity that allows you to load up and then to, to get more force behind that strike or attack, whatever it might be. So it has to be measured because there are also times where you need to slip, evade just enough, but not too much. So that needs to be measured. So that's more almost like a reactive strength or an agility type quality where you're creating distance or closing distance. So you can control the timing of your force application to put you in the right spot at the right time. So it's almost this reactive strength agility. So when I'm talking about agility, I'm talking about, you know, reacting to some sort of stimulus as well. So it's this real interrelationship between all of those. And, you know, that's what they're going to get a lot from their sports specific training. The thing to consider, at least with, with my background and the experience I had, remember a lot of these guys, they'll adapt to just about anything because their training experience. So their resistance training experience probably isn't super high. So if you give them some sort of general basic stuff, they're probably going to get a bit of strength. They're probably going to get a bit of unloaded rate of force development. They'll probably get a bit of loaded rate of force development. They may even get some reactive strength for free. And this is sort of what I was saying before. And as they become more trained, they're less likely to get all of these qualities from one sort of training modality. So you start to have to target it a bit more. Like, okay, so this person needs to be a bit more twitchy. You know, that they can't turn it on really quickly. We need to do some more reactive strength type stuff. So maybe some, I'm thinking of depth jumps with a cue to minimize contact time, regardless of jump height. So that could be one cue. Or your typical reactive strength cue, which might be to minimize contact time for maximal jump height. Okay, so you start to play around with that. So maybe they need to be a bit more twitchy. Or they're at the other end of the spectrum, maybe, okay, they're pretty good, they're pretty twitchy, but they don't really, that, that slow or that long stretch shortening cycle type action, maybe they're deficient there. And this is what you'll get from your, your profile. Maybe they're deficient there and we know that, that that's important to an extent. So we need to maybe shift an emphasis or increase the emphasis onto, onto that. So something that, that's a little bit longer stretch shortening cycle. So I think it just comes down to tailoring it to what they need and where they're deficient based on their training status. So absolutely, if they're, they're quite well trained and they need to be twitchy, the, the really sports specific stuff can, can be huge. And you have to do that, right? Particularly as you're getting them closer and closer to, to competition. You know, we've got this thing called periodization, right? And as you get closer to competition, you're gonna start doing more and more sports specific activities. So absolutely, it's got its place. There aren't many things that don't have their place at all. Um, so I think that, that they absolutely do and you can be creative with it and it's all about how you fit into a program yeah as long as you've got a justification for it yeah absolutely if it's got evidence yeah for sure absolutely if you've got an informed justification for it then then it can really have its place absolutely yeah uh, like I said about the going from somebody that's not well-trained to somebody well-trained and then when they're really adapted then go for specific stuff i'm training a fighter jordan gill at the moment he uh, has been on the program for five years and i've myself really looking at 
some stuff that he wants to do in his boxing in terms of like his footwork, uh, everything like that. Whereas like in the past, it's been like, right, let's just get you strong, let's get you explosive. Now we're really looking at how we can produce that through the kinetic chain, how he's uh, doing it, being touching on his feet, what his footwork's like, because that's, you know, it's, it's got the, it's got the foundations there in terms of his strength, speed, and explosiveness. Now we can make, we make like the, the big changes in, in his actual boxing performance by doing um, really specific stuff. Um, talking about kind of that uh, new muscular expression again, um, let's talk about the uh, loaded jump test that you mentioned in this book. I know we said it just before, Routledge, uh, Handbook of Strength Conditioning. Uh, you've got chapter in there. We've got chapter in there. That's where uh, we're first came across you. And I really, again, I'd like to just uh, have a have a little bit of recap. I had to look at me uh, our own uh, chapter as well to remember what we put in there. Uh, but in in there, you talk about a incremental loaded jump test. Now, is that similar to a load velocity profile? Can you get like the similar type of results from that? Yeah, and you know, the, these things have been around for years. I didn't invent this stuff and the person I took it off. So I think, you know, Dan Baker and Jeremy Shepard did stuff with that long before me and people did that long before them. So this isn't new stuff and it's, and it's pretty sort of straightforward yeah. as well. So the reason I did it was because there was plausibly a possibility that MMA athletes are going to be developed throughout that spectrum. And so we wanted to investigate that. And then the best way to do it was to, to do the incremental load jump squat test. So all that is, is doing your, your counter movement jump unloaded. And then with, in this case, differing percentage of body mass on their shoulders. And then from there you get, you get your profile, right? Um, and then you just, you look at where they're deficient. Probably the easiest way to go, if you wanted to start to inform training interventions is go, okay, let's look at the, the ratio of, counter movement jump with 50% on the shoulders. You can just take jump height from that, or you could take peak velocity or velocity takeoff, whatever you've got. So look at the ratio of that jumping 50% on your shoulders, boom to doing an unloaded counter movement jump. Okay. So now you've got some sort of a score or a ratio. That's pretty easy to look at. And you can go, okay, you can start yeah. to benchmark, benchmark individuals. You might go, okay, we know that a score of 0.85 on that, that measure, let's say, is characteristic of, of well-developed MMA athletes. So maybe, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a fair bit of force there, but they're also pretty good velocity. And that might be different if it's, a, let's say, a rugby league play we've been using as an example. Maybe it's, it's getting close to, you know, 0.9 or something like that. So now you've got your model. You're like, okay, we know that 0 0.75, 0 0.8 in that particular metric is characteristic of, of an MMA athlete, for example. Um, then you can see where your individual is at when you do that. Do the counter movement jump unloaded, get jump height or whatever you've got, um, and then do it with 50% body mass on the shoulders and then see where they are. So I guess it's kind of like a dynamic strength index, which pretty much is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, but then of course, of course, you've got to see what, what's their baseline strength level. Because as we all know, you get, you get velocity for free if you do heavy strength training and you're already weak. So maybe that'll kill two birds with one stone. Uh, but if they, they seem to be deficient when you put weight on their shoulders and they're already a little bit strong, then maybe you can start to shift the emphasis to some more velocity type stuff, depending on where you are in your training plan. Mm. You could also do a similar thing too with um, reactive strength index as well. So maybe you look at the reactive strength index, how are they doing there? Okay. Then you can look at how they're doing with a typical counter movement jump and where should they be with that? Because the interesting thing with the reactive strength index, which is, uh, depth jump, minimal contact time, maximal height. It's quite a distinct quality from a typical counter movement jump. So if you look at the R squared there, it's probably only around 0.5, which indicates that they're quite distinct skills, particularly as someone becomes more trained. So you've got to train them and, and test them separately. Mm. Um, if you've got sort of a, a lower level, less developed person, you'll probably see that the commonality between those two, a reactive strength and a long stretch shortening cycle action is, is much similar than it would be if they were more trained. And as a result, you can get away with the more general stimulus. Mm. That'd be interesting to look at because we've we've started um, including a bit of RSI work 
in our assessments, haven't we? Um, yeah. So that, that would be that would be interesting. I mean, we've got hundreds of of boxes on our database, but probably not so much with any RSI measures at the moment. So that would yeah. be interesting to. We've, we've also, we've also uh, because we're doing the load velocity profile. Uh, the reason why I wanted to ask this question because we we started uh, playing about with a similar uh, model. We're doing it with the uh, trap bar, doing a counter movement jump. Mm -hmm. Um, doing it unloaded, taking jump high because uh, our university is closed, we don't have access to the gym aware, so we're oh, doing uh, yeah, so where we, we've got the uh, my jump app and we're taking uh, jump height from, from different loads and uh, from like, like you say, about 50% body mass all the way up to 100% body mass on the trap bar and then seeing what that, that decline is. Um, we don't have a massive base at the moment. I think we've only got about three boxes in the database, but then we've got about 10 overall, like kind of general population. So that's something that we're looking to do whilst we're, we haven't access to the uh, fancy kit and equipment that, we've, uh, that we use. So, so, basic, so basically just seeing how their jump high on the kind of move jump declines as the, as the load goes up and seeing whether they're more force dominant or whether they're uh, more twitching and, and speed dominant as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be good to see what's what what's characteristic of elite level boxes in that, you know, are they inherently or as a result of their sport and their training more velocity dominant or more force dominant? And if that's the case, you know, maybe now you know what you need to target. And then once you reach that target, okay, maybe we can start to, to play with other things around there to give them a competitive advantage. Mm. And you know what's cool? What, what, one of the things about um, lockdown is that it's thought, forced us to, to think outside of the lab. And so what Danny's describing there is the MyJump app. How much is it? About 10 quid. Ten, yeah. Ten, it's about 10 quid. You know, anyone can, anyone can download that app. You know, and if you've got access to a, a trap bar and, and some weights, anyone can to, can do that profiling. All right, yeah. Um, the understanding that we've got around that profiling and some of the physiological and me mechanical concepts that underpin performance maybe um, is, a, is a little different to, to everyone else. But there's no reason why coaches and athletes can't carry out that kind of assessment how, the, the my jump app's pretty easy to use as well, isn't it? It's, it's pretty user friendly, and um, I, I, there's been maybe a couple of papers now that have looked at its validity and reliability, and and suggested that it's sufficient for use in the field as well. So, really interesting. Yeah, that, that's great. Particularly if you know you want an idea of of kind of where their strength levels at, and you know they might be wary of going super heavy. You know, it's not feasible to do one or three RM testing all the time that that's not possible. So if you can do something like a, a loaded trap bar jump and that you'll know that'll have a pretty tight correlation to what their, their maximal strength level will be. So you start to get an indicator of that too, which can be really helpful. Cool. So um, that's a great way to, uh, to finish. I know, um, Alan's got a got a meeting now. We've squeezed this in into his busy schedule. Uh, so, Lachlan, where can people kind of find your information, whether that's um, over social media um, or, or on websites, stuff like that, or ResearchGate? Where can they find more about you? Probably the, the best way is um, jump on my Twitter. So it's at DocLockJames. So at D-O-C-L-A-C-H-J-A-M-E-S. That's probably the, the best way to find me. So find me on there and shoot me a message. I'm happy to, to answer any questions or get a bit of a chat going. Um, I'm fairly active on there, so I'm on there pretty regularly. So feel free to jump on and give me a shout. Fantastic. Good. And uh, what, what does the, the next few months look like for you whilst coming up? Yeah, good question. So... Semester two in Australia is about to kick off in the next couple of weeks. So we're just about 
halfway through our academic year. And hopefully we're, we're going back to some face-to-face -face practicals and labs for, for my strength and conditioning subjects. And we've got a pretty flash new strength conditioning lab in Sports Park at La Trobe that I'm excited to, to get the students into. So I've got my fingers crossed for that and it looks like we, we might be traveling okay. So that's, that's what's on the cards for me. And as far as the teaching side of things go and research, you've got plenty of things going on. Um, looking at some strength power training studies, of course, we've got that going and working with some of the, the teams around us. And of course, there's always some MMA stuff in there as well. So uh, watch and wait, hopefully we'll have some stuff out there shortly. Fantastic. Right. Well, it's in, my, it's in my plans to uh, be coming out to Australia, uh, doing a bit of traveling and uh, taking, uh, taking my future wife on a tour of different uh, gyms and facilities as well. Sneak, sneak oh, that please one Please come in. out, guys. You'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it'll be, uh, be good to see this uh, new uh, fancy gym that you're going to get your hands on. Uh, yeah, come down. Yeah, I'll give you a tour. Factor. Take you to all the wineries. <laughs> yeah, Pubs. fantastic. <laughs> Brilliant. Cheers, Lachlan. Cheers, Alan, for your time. Um, and yeah, um, I'm sure that a lot of uh, listeners will uh, take a lot of value from this. And if you don't follow Lachlan yet on Twitter, go and follow him. And uh, and yeah, read, read all his research because it's top quality stuff. Okay, thanks, Lachlan. I'll see you soon. Thanks, lads. Really appreciate you having me. Cheers, mate. See you later. Bye bye. Okay, guys, so that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've got a lot out of it and you can start applying this to your coaching and your training. like to uh, thank you for listening and please hit the subscribe button. And if you've got 30 or 60 seconds of your time, please uh, leave us a five-star review if you like the content. And also give us some feedback. Tell us what you like about the channel. Tell us what you want us to cover in future episodes. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next podcast.